This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Charles Manson has passed away. Cult leader, uh, conflicted, uh, convicted rather of, of orchestrating some of the gruesome murders of the late 60s, uh, including the murder of Sharon Tate and eight others. To talk more about all of this, James Dubro is with us, well-known longtime crime writer, researcher, and specialized in uh, organized crime, and is with us now. James, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, no problem, Scott. How are you? Good. How did this person command uh, our attention for so long? Why were we so interested in this? Well, he he was such a demonic, Stengali type figure. You know, he uh, he had a uh, swastika on his forehead, uh, tattooed on his forehead, and he had uh, uh, really uh, hypnotized a number of women who did his bidding for him include these awful killings in 69. I remember it well. I was a student at Columbia in New York, and uh, the night that Sharon Tate, who had been a really beautiful up-and-coming movie star, she had been in the Fearless Vampire Killers. She had married Roman Polanski, the great director. She was in another film that was pretty well-known, The Valley of the Dolls. And then she was brutally mm-hmm. murdered about a couple of months before she was to have her baby, uh, and the baby was killed, too. It was, it was a very sick, uh, savage crime. And these women went and did the killing at the behest of Charlie Manson, who was this demonic figure from the, hip, the, the dark side of the hippie period in the late 60s. So how long did this period last? How long did his reign last? Well, from what we know of the crimes, it was only a, a couple of years. Um, but, you know, he did a lot of damage in that period. The... The trials took a while, and for him to be convicted, because he wasn't actually present at the the scene of the murders, he had uh, instigated them but not been there, so it took a while before they were able to convict him. Um, But he was was consistent throughout his whole life. When he gave interviews, uh, he always talked as if he were Jesus Christ and that he was an important figure in... uh, in cult lore, and that he was more important than anyone else, and that he was, he, you know, he denied the killings, but of course he didn't actually do the killings, he orchestrated them. But Did he ever acknowledge that? How did he explain no, he never, that? He never did, he never did. The women did, though, the, some of the women that uh, worked for him. Some of those women, well, you said a couple, I said a couple of years, but actually his, his sinister uh, aura went on further because some of those women in her cult went on to do other serious crimes, including one of them, Squeaky Fromm, was in his, mm. his cult. She she shot uh, President Ford, and that was in the mid-'70s. So it actually did go on longer through the 70s. Most of those women are still in jail. Some, some are out on, uh, you know, have been pardoned or got out. But uh, How do we explain his command over people? That's a very, very, uh, with a psychic power, rare... Uh, Rear power uh, of a of a cult leader. Um, it's hard to explain. Uh, almost religious in their devotion to his evil, um, and he he had a complete hold over them. It was pretty sinister. And uh, now there was some talk because Polanski had done some horror films that, that he was selected as a target, but I don't think that really happened. That that Sharon Tate was selected mm. as a target to. Uh, because they, Manson had a dispute with someone uh, who had been living at the house where they killed the eight people, and uh, it was really aimed at that fellow uh, musical uh, musician. Hmm. And but 
they just killed anyone who was there savagely. And, and you know, Sharon Tate pleaded for her life of her baby, as opposed to she was going to offer her own life, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't hear any of it. They just stabbed her dozens of times and killed her. It was really sick. What did Manson say of his command over people? He said it was natural that he he didn't do anything unusual. He never he never said it was demonic or satanic, but it was. I mean, it was. <laughs> there's nothing else like it in the history of my lifetime. You know, I was just an innocent student at Columbia then, but it, it, uh, it we had never seen a crime like that in the '60s. You know, were quite wild, but not in that way. Talk about the whole cult theory and, and how that evolved after this these killings. Well, there, there was various cults. You mean the cult of Manson or the various, I mean, there were so many cults. How his contributed to that whole lore? Well, he contributed to the, to the dark side, you know, the, the, uh, the, the evil cults and, the, and, and, you know, satanic rituals and satanic orders and pagan orders have, you know, they're not based on Manson totally, but some of them do. Um, some of them are not even evil. I mean, pagan doesn't necessarily mean evil, but there have been a number of cults established since then uh, of people who, uh, well, you know, the one who ran that uh, in South America or Central America, the uh, the cult where he ended up, they all took the Kool-Aid and, mm. and died. That was another, you know, one people wonder why why did Jones, his name was, why did people take commit suicide at his behest, hundreds of people, Jonestown. Mm. And it was just, there was so, so strongly under his spell, just as the women were under Manson, they were just strongly under his spell, for better or for good, and uh, for evil, and, and this was definitely for evil uh, in both cases. And so there have been other cults like that, but fortunately they haven't grown that strong. I mean, there are various cults in Canada too, evil cults, but none of the level of Jonestown or even Manson. I mean, that was horrific. What about the role of drugs? Lots blamed that in the 60s, that whole movement. Uh, How how much of that is involved in this? Well, drugs, (laughs) hard to explain in the 60s unless you lived through them Mm. uh, and you're too young. Uh, But the fact is uh, the 60s were all about drugs, sex, and rock and roll, you know. (laughs) In a positive way, mm-hmm. we all, we all took drugs, uh, whether it was LSD or marijuana or speed, and everyone did. It, also, the people involved in negative cults did. It was just if you look at any of the Woodstock, <laughs> yeah. you know, that that it was just you know that was the way it is. It was free love and uh, rock and roll and drugs. You know, that was uh, that was our, our gods in the '60s. How do you explain his obsession with the Beatles? That's a hard one because the Beatles are, are so eminently uh, literate and, and beautiful. Um, I suppose just something he came to because uh, they are great musicians, and he just happened to, you know, to latch onto that. But you know, it, there's no logic to a madman like that, and uh, and we shouldn't probably give him too much uh, time because he really was a wretched, wretched human being. And he craved the attention, didn't he? Oh, he did, yes. He gave a famous interview with Diane Sawyer, which is chilling to watch. I noticed part of it was on today. It, uh, just chilling, because he was a chilling character. He never... He, he, he was insane. There's no question. Every time you see him or hear him, he, he was insane. How he then, you know, had this power over these, these women and, and this cult-like power is, is beyond reason. What did we learn from this case? Hmm. 
Well, that's that's hard. That that man is in, <laughs> incapable of horrible, horrible evil, and that people can be influenced uh, to do terrible things at the behest of someone else with a strong enough hold of him. Now, that's happened before, of course. We've had Rasputin, we've had Svengali, we've had all sorts of negative influences in history, but this is this is a very serious one in our own time. This all happened sixty nine seventy. So. What about copycats? What about inspiring others? We always worry about this, especially in today's world. Uh, I don't think anyone can copy Manson. He was unique in that sense, you know. Um, but people have, of course, tried to kill. And in fact, you know, up until that time, I don't know if you know this, but up until that time, there hadn't been a lot of serial killings or mass killings. There have been a few. Uh, and since the Manson killings, there have been people trying to match him, you know, in terms of evil. But... I don't think anyone has reached that level, even though people have killed many more people. It's the way it was done and, and uh, the savagery of it and, and the randomness of it. I mean, you know, they, they scrawled in, in Sharon Tate's blood over her bed, pig, as kind of a anti-capitalist um, statement, but there was no philosophy behind it. What are your thoughts on, and this is completely off topic, but sort of not, um, your thoughts on the gun culture in the United States and what we've witnessed, whether it's Las Vegas, what have you? Well, personally, <laughs> for a long time, I thought the Second Amendment needed to be uh, amended, so, or certainly dealt with in the sense that they, people do not need uh, the right to bear arms of the kind of arms that people have. I mean, it's so obvious, but it's so hard to get around the Second Amendment, but they could, re they could really do it. And, you know, there's no need to have automatic weapons and machine guns and all these things that they have. Uh, and there's no way they can defend against the government anyway, because they're not allowed to have bombs and, and, and you know, jet aircraft and, and tanks. So it's all a bit of a, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of getting your priorities right. And, and some, somehow in the United States, the, the gun lobby has just been able to... Uh, overshadow everything else and it's very sad james dubrow has been with us longtime crime writer uh, researcher and specialized in organized crime james thanks for the time and insight much good, appreciated good, good to speak to you scott take care thank you much appreciated let's bring in ross mclean crime specialist uh, security expert ross mclean security uh, dot com to find out more he's with us now ross how do you explain how this person uh, commanded uh, society's attention for so long why are we so interested in this case well, it, it, it's really quite spectacular, actually, when you look at it. You have somebody uh, who went through the classic uh, childhood of someone who's going to turn into a career criminal and a, and a crazy guy, if you will, but who was picked up as a cult, a cult person. He was on T-shirts and movies and songs and, and all sorts of things. So, I mean, that helped to encourage it. Some people have uh, a fascination with uh, cult-type characters, Scott. What have we learned from this whole process over the years? Well, one of the things that have, that's come out of people like Charles Manson and others is the whole science of profiling, uh, looking at people, trying to figure out uh, where their mind is, where they're coming from, so you can predict and catch them. And he was certainly, you know, one of those people. You know, it's interesting, if you watch some videos of him, he's the, the ultimate con man, is what, he, what he's become. Uh, you, you take the human mind, Scott, and uh, it's like taking a, a dog. You take a little terrier and you leave it in your backyard all alone by itself. It'll figure out a way to get in trouble and something to do and whatever works for it to get out. Uh, the human mind can be the same way, too. And certainly Charles Manson, I don't think that he was unintelligent. 
but his mind was turned to evil and working at evil, and, and that was his view of the world. How do you think others viewed him? How do you think, uh, we, we often talk of the situation that we're in now with uh, terrorism, whether it's domestic terrorism, foreign terrorism, whether it's, it's at the hands of, of people who have bought guns legally, whether it's, uh, you know, the fear uh, from international terrorism. It just seems that this sort of thing, you don't hear about it as much, or perhaps we, we didn't then. Why did it seem to stand out? Well, you bring up an interesting point. You know, one of the things about what goes on with terrorism and cults now uh, is you see that you have people who are somewhat charismatic speakers who seem to speak a philosophy that when they look for their victims, they're people who will swallow these philosophies and they'll sort of believe them, such as, you know, capitalism is tyranny and, and these sort of things. And certainly George Orwell had some of the lines, you know, as well, where he talked about, you know, slavery is freedom and you know, war is peace and these sort of things. And to some people, their minds get into that and they don't really have the critical thinking skills to make the judgment of what is really the right thing to do. Hence, you can get people talked into doing everything from wearing suicide vests and walking up to uh, military checkpoints or or killing somebody. You know, these are people who aren't strong in their own identities and they're uh, gullible, they're able to be molded into something, and they follow uh, empty philosophies, really, without the ability to have good critical thinking. Are you surprised Manson got others to do his killing? That's, uh, that's certainly a different thing. We've certainly seen a lot of serial killers, not many that talk people into getting their killing, but I, I noticed one of the things he did after he... I mean, he got all his education in prison, Scott. He got his grade 7 when he was in prison, and then when he got arrested later, when he was more of an adult, they put him in jail with one of the worst gangsters, Alvin Carpus. So he got his Ph.D., you know, learning from him about crime. And after he got out, he got into uh, pimping and, you know, taking girls, talking them and performing sex for him, working for him, and earning for him. So he learned how to talk to people and find people who are willing to listen to him, that he could probe and he could mold and he could make do things and certainly the access to using drugs uh, helps as well when you're doing that so uh although different very similar in many ways to other serial killers right uh and, and when people get into these crowds like they said he had his own little uh you know commune going on there where everybody was together now you also have a group dynamic that's going on and you're, and you're limited to what you're thinking and what you hear and what you believe in the world you know, and you typically tend to get desensitized. That's one of the ways that you get people to move on and do more horrible things is you take them step by step through a desensitization. And that's one of the things that a con man does when they talk to you, right? They'll ask you a question. They'll look to see if you're buying their answer or not. And if you're buying it, they'll go with it. If you're not, they'll adjust their story a little bit and see if they can move and manipulate you until they can finally get you to where they want you. So he was very much a con man and a showman. And he really knew how to speak, actually, in good little short sound bites. He was very colorful, and he had enough jailhouse philosophy that for someone who thought he may be something more than what he was, he suckered people in. Do you think he's a hero to some? Well, whoever decided to put him on a t-shirt and wear That's what I mean. It's bizarre. It, well, it is. I mean, we, we get that there's a fascination with crime and death and those sort of there is a fascination people do want to understand it but there's a certain point where that turns into more of a 
a fetish or an excitement, if you will, sort of thing. You know, I, I read about this one girl. Uh, actually, I watched her testimony when she talked about it. She was being recruited by uh, ISIS online. They were trying to radicalize her, and they got her to keep on watching more and more violent uh, videos with people being beheaded, burned alive, all these sort of things. And the girl actually said that after a period of time, she said at first it revolted her, and then after a while her mind adjusted to it, and it tended to excite her waiting for the time because of the way it can work your brain with the reward system and these sort of things. So too much exposure in the wrong way, um, you can twist and bend people, and that's that's the dangerous part about this. Does this help us explain things like these modern crimes? Well, as I said, it's helped with with the advent of profiling. Every police department now, every major police department, certainly has a profiling section where you look at people and you try to determine uh, the profile of who would likely do something like this. And I'll tell you, if you can get into it and you do the study of it, I do it myself. You can really understand a lot about people, and it helps to narrow down as to why someone would do the things they do. So there's very much a forensic aspect to it. Like, for instance, when you find a body, if a body has been uh, badly mistreated, you know that that's something out of violence and rage. If you find a body that instead has been sort of dressed and folded over, the eyes closed and the hands crossed and that sort of thing, Mm. you know it's someone that probably had a relationship to that person. So their actions really speak as to what motivated them, and it helps the police to track them down. And obviously for the police and everybody else, they'd love to get all these people in advance of their crimes. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The former president of Mexico has had some harsh words for Justin Trudeau. Uh, when it comes to negotiating NAFTA, including some uh, extremely colorful language, accusing, uh, I guess, the prime minister of uh, cutting a deal on the side or at least alluding to the fact that there's uh, side negotiations going on. This could be Trump more than anything uh, as he plays both sides against the middle. To talk about all of this, Patrick LeBlanc is with his associate professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and is on the line with us now. Patrick, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So, uh, so what do we attribute these comments from the former uh, Mexican president? Uh, how do you explain this? Uh, well, it's 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 they're quite surprising uh, because uh, they they seem to come out of nowhere. In fact, uh, we know that uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has as 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 you know publicly stated that, and and uh, Foreign Minister Freeland uh, both saying that you know they believe um, that uh, Canada and and Mexico should should be united in their negotiations vis-a-vis. Um, uh, the U.S. and that uh, certainly that has been gen- the, the general view of people who have looked at these negotiations. Of course, there's been uh, criticism uh, from uh, former Prime Minister Harper and and others on the conservative side attacking uh, the, uh, the 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 Liberal government for in a way not cutting a deal uh, with the Americans and saying that you know we would be better off if we did this bilaterally, uh, which in a way was the kind of approach that uh, the former um, Prime Minister supported, and and we saw in fact. Um, a more bilateral approach before this, the, 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 the liberals came to power and um, the, the, the launch of the renegotiations of, of NAFTA. So th- this is quite surprising that um, you know, uh, former uh, 
President, uh, well, uh, President Fox, for former President Fox, uh, says that uh, apparently the the Canadians are are kind of negotiating on the sides without the Mexicans, and 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 it seems it doesn't seem to have been corroborated by by anyone else. I haven't seen anything uh, on social media or anywhere that that would support such a view. So I don't know if he's privy to uh, particular inside information that we don't have, uh, or is it a way that he's he's just putting pressure on the Canadians to make sure that. Uh, they they don't abandon the Mexicans because we know in fact uh, that you know that given um, President Trump's views uh, with regards to uh, trade deficits, right? He sees uh, trade agreements as a way to um, resolve uh, the the trade deficits that the United States has, in particular with Mexico, and this is why. He's launched these renegotiations, hoping in a way that he can insert more protectionist measures uh, in a NAFTA 2.0 and uh, therefore uh, resolve or uh, reduce the, the, the trade deficit between the United States and Mexico. Although all economists say at this point that uh, all these measures are likely to just make things worse. Uh, but so it's not clear whether from um, former President Fox this is a, a, a sort of tactic uh, to make sure that Mexico is not cut loose or is actually a reflection of something that has happened uh, behind, the, behind the scenes. So is Fox reacting to Trump's rhetoric or is he reacting to actions by Trudeau? Well, that's what we don't know. Uh, certainly, the the, the 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 public statements that have been made by 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 the the, the liberal the, the the current government has been all about no, we need to stand firm with Mexico. We know that uh, the the Prime Minister uh, Trudeau had a meeting with uh, President Peñoneta in in uh, in Vietnam at the APEC summit. Um, so it seems that a- everything that we've heard and seen is about uh, close cooperation close coordination between the Mexicans and, and the Canadians. We've seen this even in, in the re- recent reports, I guess yesterday, uh, with regards to uh, the demands by the U.S. administration uh, um, in terms of rules of origins for the automotive sector, where they're asking for 85 nor- 85% North American content, but a guaranteed 50% U.S. content. And both um, Mexico and Canada said, you know, this, of course, this is unacceptable, and, and, and we're not going to make counterproposals. We're actually going to you know, fight the Americans with data and show them that actually this is going to be bad, not only for Canada and Mexico, but also for the United States, and this is how we're going to deal with them. So it, all the information is about Canada and Mexico standing firm, uh, having similar interests vis-a-vis the Americans, and all of a sudden Mr. Fox comes with this, and, and so far it, it's not clear whether, uh, and we know he's been very critical of, of President Trump. So it's it's a little bit puzzling uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, what would the current administration, what would the current Mexican administration think of this? How are they reacting? Well, again, we haven't seen anything in terms of reaction, certainly not in, in well, I don't follow the, the, the Spanish language media, unfortunately, since I don't speak Spanish, uh, but in, in the English language media, whether it's in the U.S. or um, in um, international news media or in Canada, there has been nothing really. No one has taken up this. So it's, 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 it's quite surprising that uh, is it, people are just saying, well, you know, he's, He's making the statements, but we—it it seems to have uh, no corroboration, 
or are they still looking into it? It's really not clear. But, uh, you know, certainly I, I don't think the, the – and we haven't even seen a statement from the, the Canadian government saying, no, 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 you know, we, we, we stand with our Mexican counterparts. Uh, we have, so uh, it's, 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 for now it's, it's, it's mostly puzzling. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, it, 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 it certainly would not be – uh, to Canada's advantage at this stage uh, to to really kind of throw the Mexicans under a bus and, and try to neg- negotiate bilaterally. I think if that happens, basically it should happen uh, when 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 Mr. Trump is is pretty clear that the U.S. are going to actually leave uh, NAFTA, or if they actually leave NAFTA, then you know it would make sense to have a bilateral negotiation, which would happen anyways. Which in part may be what Mr. Trump is all about, uh, but for now it, it makes no sense for the Canadians to, to try to negotiate something right away uh, with, uh, with the U.S. Uh, and, and not with the Mexicans. They, they, there's nothing, no logic in, in, term, in terms of such a move politically. Uh, we are not in a rush in, in terms of having an, um, uh, a deal with the Americans. Uh, President Trump has not even notified anyone that he, he wants to leave NAFTA. Uh, the, their round of negotiations plan until March. So, so it, it, it you know, strategically, politically, uh, such a move by the Canadians uh, would make no sense. Now, was there a discussion somewhere, you know, behind closed doors between uh, the, the Canadian negotiator with the, the, the American negotiator uh, informally, and, and this was interpreted as, you know, Canada and, 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 and the U.S. are cutting a deal? Uh, could be, but maybe it's just, you know, um, mis- misinterpretation of, of what, what, what might have happened. Uh, behind closed doors. It's not clear. How do you think Trump will react to this? Uh, How do you think he should? Uh, The quote from uh, Fox, and I won't say all of it, Trump says uh, America is great again. uh, We will make America great again, and the rest of the world, uh, F you. He also goes on to say uh, we will never pay for that certain wall (laughs) using the F-bomb again. Uh, this just seems everybody's lowering their le- lowering their level to to that of Trump's. How do we how do we react to this? Well, I I, I think we don't. Uh, the, the the worst thing we can do, and 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 this has been mentioned before by by many people, is is to you know engage Trump. Um, you know, on his game at his level, uh, and and certainly uh, former President Fox has, has been doing this to some extent. Has been very critical, personally attacking Mr. Trump, and and in part, I guess um, the, the, the the this might be the the Trump's reaction to some of the things that uh, former President Fox has said. Uh, but I think the the Canadian and to some extent, the, the Mexican strategy so far uh, has been to you know let Trump be, uh, let, let let him rant on Twitter, let him rant on Fox or whichever conservative news media he, he wants to to rant on, since he, he's not really talking to the others, um, and 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 then just you know. Keep going. Keep engaging not only with the White House administration, but with Congress, with the governors, uh, with 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 you know cities, um, uh, state uh, uh, assemblies, and and parliaments, uh, and 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 just keep doing that that kind of on the ground work to make sure that we have as many allies and support in ensuring that Mr. Trump uh, does not or cannot. Uh, withdraw the United States from NAFTA and that uh, the negotiations towards a modernized agreement uh, take place and are ultimately successful. 
Uh, do you think do you think this plays right into Donald Trump's narrative when he hears a statement like this? Well, in a way, it's yes, it does uh, because uh, you know he he actually favors bilateral negotiations because uh, he thinks that uh, in, in in this way the Americans have more leverage, right? So instead of the United States facing Canada and Mexico together, well, of course uh, he thinks Mr. Trump thinks that uh, the the United States has more leverage because it's you know relatively bigger than just Mexico and then just Canada, and, and therefore you. You know, kind of uh, divide and conquer type of approach. We've seen this with um, in terms of uh, approaches by Mr. Trump to uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan to to launch bilateral negotiations when in fact the Americans had a deal with Japan through the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but Mr. Trump left that agreement, uh, which the Americans actually designed and and were at the core of, uh, and now is trying to have these bilateral deals. And and, and, and he and, and Mr. Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representatives, uh, as, as as they have you know repeatedly mentioned that they prefer bilateral deals and not because they're you know better economically just because they think that uh, from a, a sort of protectionist nationalist perspective the Americans the Americans can can gain more because you know they they are the more powerful economic partner in in the relationship but so, Patrick yes. if Patrick if that theory works then why would any of these big business people have wanted to get into free trade in the first place I mean these are discussions that we had back in the 1980s and 90s it just seems odd that to take this approach as a business plan as a business yeah, opportunity. Absolutely, and this is what, you know, the U.S. The, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has been kind of banging the nail repeatedly and saying, you know, we don't want any of this. We, you know, we wanted TPP. The agricultural sector is saying, we want TPP. We, didn't, we never wanted the U.S. to leave uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We want, you know, we are in favor of NAFTA. We, we're happy with a modernized NAFTA in the way that the Canadians and the Mexicans are pushing for, not in the way that the Americans are pushing for whether it's these rules of origins with the automotive sector said we never asked for these things, uh, whether it's the sunset clause, which again, you know, would create huge uncertainty because, uh, you know, what happens after five years if not all five, uh, three countries decide to continue uh, with NAFTA, which we, in, in, in Trump's case, would be a nice way to just say, oh, well, you know, we don't want to renegotiate NAFTA, so we're out, and, and here it is. Uh, and so all the American American businesses, uh, American um, agricultural groups are up in arms with this. Uh, but somehow, Mr. Lighthizer, Mr. Trump, uh, they seem to be stuck in is some kind of 18th century, early 19th century mercantilist world. Uh, but but my interpretation is that they, they look at this from a, a, a sort of they try to apply a business perspective, not an international business perspective, but a kind of real estate business perspective where exports are like revenues, imports are like costs. So if you have a trade deficit, therefore you must uh, lose money. You know, like you're, you're, you're not making money, you're losing money. And, and, and this is this kind of very, uh, f- well, flawed and, and, and simple approach that Mr. Trump seems to be looking at when he looks at trade, whereas nowadays this makes no sense. Uh, you know, I, I, we've mentioned this before. Uh, lower imports or better imports in terms of technology, quality, etc., can actually make you more competitive, not only on, on the domestic market vis-a-vis foreigners, but you know, on international markets vis-a-vis foreigners competitors. Uh, so, and, and you can have a deficit in, in, with one country and have a surplus with another, another
another country. You know, uh, China, for instance, yes, has a surplus with Canada, with, Euro- with Europe, with the United States, but it has deficits with China, with uh, South Korea, with a lot of the Asian countries because it imports all the, the sort of high-value-added parts to assemble them and then re-export the iPhones and the computers and the televisions, etc., to the, to, to the rest of the world. So, but Mr. Trump and, and even Mr. Lighthizer seem to be completely incapable of understanding that logic, even though it, it, you know, apparently it's been explained to them many times, but they seem to be set in their ways. And, and, and unfortunately, some, some people seem to agree that, that that's the way it should be. Are perhaps, Patrick, we giving him too much credit? At the end of the day, it seems he just wants to dismantle everything and then put it back together sort of the same way and then just put his brand on it. I mean, whether it's signing big books every so often in front of a crowd, whether it's plastering his name on a hotel or the side of a plane, I think this guy just wants Trump land. Whether it's your idea, my idea, or anybody else's, he's just going to take it and scrap it and stamp his name on it and shoot it back out there. Uh, actually, that that that's very possible. I uh, you know I not thought of that in, in in those terms, but you might actually be right. So you know it it doesn't matter at all, as you say. He just wants to rebuild whatever it is, uh, and and yes, have uh, the the Trump name on it, and somehow claim victory because. Like, haven't we already, like, like, this is almost like a boy who cried wolf. It, it's amazing we haven't figured it out yet, and I guess we will eventually. Um, uh, but the same thing with NAFTA in the sense that, I don't know, I think this is going to be an 11th hour deal. That really, to, to this point, it's just all rhetoric and posturing, and I think Canada's realizing that. And it's like, you know what, we'll let this run its course, and then when it, it comes to push, comes to shove, down to the brass tacks, boom, it'll get done. Well, I just think this is all part of the dance. Yeah, well, I, I think this is what the Canadians are, are, are expecting, you know, the Canadian government is expecting and doing. You know, it's like they said, we're going to sit at that negotiating table for, for as long as it takes. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I agree that and usually these deals are 11th hour deals. Uh, I mean, we saw even the, uh, at, at the APEC summit where uh, the, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 11 countries, and, you know, did, did not manage to reach a deal in principle because the Canadians said, you know, we're not ready to sign, even though there's, there was yeah. huge pressure on them to do so. And the Canadians said, look, we're not ready. You, you, you said we were going to sign, but we're not. And, 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 you know, even Canada is able to, to, to leverage in a way its, its size and its role in, in, in trade deals. I mean, it does it in a much nicer way than, than, than Trump does. Uh, but, yes, if it happens, it's going to be an 11th hour uh, deal. I would not be surprised that at some point in January, uh, Mr. Trump actually uh, notifies Canada and Mexico, uh, according to Article 2205 of, of the North American Free Trade Agreement, that he intends to leave after the six-month sort of delay period. Uh, as a way to put pressure on Canada and Mexico. I don't think that Canada and Mexico will react any differently than they have so far, but I think he's going to try that card. If he, if he doesn't think that he's getting what he thinks he should get, uh, he will try to put even more pressure. And then I, I would expect then the backlash in the U.S. to be even stronger at that moment. And then we'll have to see how much you know, pressure he can take uh, before you know, there he he finds enough in a negotiate in a kind of a modernized NAFTA uh, to to claim victory and saying, well, look, you yeah. know, we pushed as hard as we could. This is what we got, and this is a good deal. And you know, I made it happen, and I'm sure that you know the the Canadians and Mexicans will be happy to give him the credit.
it if they if they they sure. get him to sign mm-hmm. on that dotted line. So, but there really is there a rush for Canada or Mexico? I mean, Trump tries to create panic and confusion, but what if they don't react? Well, for Canada, there is no rush. You know, for right now we're not in a rush. We don't have any. You know, we don't have an election until uh, t- 2019. Uh, you know, the Mexicans have an election uh, coming. Yeah. But it's not clear at this point. A lot of people say, "Oh, yes, the 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 Mexicans want to have this dealt with before the the, the national election, the presidential election in in uh, in July." But you know, maybe the the thinking is, at this point is, you know what? If we don't have a deal, it's it's it may be fine. And certainly, trying to be rushed in a, a not so good deal for the Mexicans. So I think the Mexicans might just. I mean, they might be using the election as an excuse to f- force. The Americans mm. uh, to to negotiate and reach a deal before the elections, and then you know Peñoneta and, and others could claim victory and say, look, you know this is uh, we we got a deal, we got a good deal, and and you know then uh, I uh, probably the, the the Mexican people would say that's great, but if not, then you know what uh, the the Mexican might say. Well, you know, then you'll have to deal with whoever, whomever is elected, and if it's Mr. Obrador uh, Lopez, then you know that might be even an even tougher cookie for Trump mm. to negotiate with, given that he's not generally inclined towards the Americans, uh, and maybe they're using that uh, again as as some leverage vis-a-vis uh, the Americans. And then, of course, for the for the Americans, uh, if this drags into the midterm elections, and and it you know it's 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 very tense and 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 you know very public. Then it might force actually some uh, senators and certainly House representatives to come uh, come out on one side or the other of NAFTA, which is not something that they may want to do, right? Uh, because of course, then it becomes highly politicized, and 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 if Mr. Trump and his his supporters are of course uh, you know, fighting the, the NAFTA negotiations, and then on the other hand, the business community is putting a lot of pressure on on on, on these Congress people and senators to to come out in favor of NAFTA, uh, this could create a very interesting situation and dilemma for these people, which I would think they would want to avoid going into the midterm election. So again, probably at their, at their end, Congress is putting a lot of pressure on the Trump administration to to kind of close this deal before the midterm elections are uh, have, um, the, the begin. And uh, so we'll see. I think, in fact, that there's more pressure on the Americans than, than they realize. Patrick LeBlanc has been with his associate professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Patrick, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. wonder now what the heck I'm going to do until February. Uh, the NASCAR season has come to uh, a grinding halt. Of course, uh, although I do believe it's the longest-running professional series as far as the duration of their year uh, of any of the professional sports, Martin Truex Jr. wins the last NASCAR race of 2017 and, of course, takes the cup title. Joining us now, Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. And, of course, you can hear him right here Sunday nights on CHML. He's with us now. Eric, how are you? Scooter, we haven't chatted in uh, many a moon, and I'm glad we're doing that. And I understand you're racing through the woods of Caroline right now. (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, last weekend it would have been Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, but no, I was, uh, right. no, seriously, in all seriousness, I was, but uh, no, I was, I've just been up to uh, our, our good uh, national partners at Subaru Canada picking up uh, a brand new uh, 2018 Subaru Outback because we're all headed up to the Canadian Rally Championship Rally of the Tall Pines 
next weekend. So I get the loner and uh, very cool tootling on back. So we'll head up there with all wheel drive and uh, the, the highest clearance in the business and uh, and have fun uh, watching the the rally road guys go flying down roads with trees on either side with three inches of snow on on the road. Which that is. is you know, that is an insane yeah. sport. And it's an insane yeah, it sport is. because those big trees don't move when you hit them. No, they don't. And you can run into them all day and you can't get them to budge at all. It's just yeah, it's one, of those, one of those phenomenons. But uh, what, a, what a fantastic story. Truex winning the, the NASCAR Cup Championship mm-hmm. with his Canadian crew chief, Cole Pern, from Strathroy, Ontario. The best team all season long. They win eight times, four of those in the playoff. He was the favorite going into the playoff, and he pulls it off in the end in probably one of the best and purest NASCAR races I've seen. I don't want to say all season, but certainly one of a few where, you know, they didn't have to add any laps or there wasn't a lot of, you know what I think about all this manipulation, right? Yeah. It was just it was just Truex, Marty trying to hold off first Harvick and then Kyle Busch and just edging Kyle by six tenths of a second at the flag. There's crying. There's emotion. When you understand what that team has been through this year, with with Martin's uh, girlfriend Sherry battling cancer, two guys on their crew yeah. uh, dropped dead of heart attacks this year. Mm. So, holy Toledo! What a perfect ending for a phenomenal season. And this again from a team that does not have the budget that Hendrick does or Penske does. They're not even headquartered in Charlotte, where everybody else is. They're way out with the Furniture Row Company in Denver, Colorado. So all the way around, a very, very fitting end to a driver who uh, is a favorite, a guy from New Jersey who happens to have a Canadian crew chief. So it's just, a, a, I think, a tremendous story all the way around. So how do you explain this small team, which was one car up until very recently, uh, right. how do you explain right. them beating those major teams? And again, explain how it works where I believe they get their vehicles from Joe Gibbs? Yeah, they're associated with Joe Gibbs, and, and they are under the Gibbs umbrella. So the, the uh, their, their Toyotas are prepared by the Joe Gibbs bunch and their cars are always very very stout. So you if know, you're Joe group, if you're Joe Gibbs and Kyle Busch today, how are you feeling that you got beat by someone driving your own stuff? Well, you know, you you run into that possibility when you provide engines and cars for customers, but it's not that it's not that Kyle Busch got beat by, you know, uh, by making a mistake. You know, that car has been the class of the field all year. And I mean, for crying out loud, Kyle, from a good chunk of that race, I thought he was going to win it. But yeah. you know as well as I do, Scott, when you're churning the fastest laps out there, you're guzzling fuel and you're wearing out your tires. Yeah. So let's remember that on lap 51, Marty had to uh, Marty took over the lead for good when Kyle had to come in and pit to look mm-hmm. after those things because he was so fast on that day. So the equipment is fine. Yeah, would you like Kyle to win it? Sure. But you know what? I don't think anybody begrudges Martin to win that. That's no. his first championship. Kyle Harvick and Keselowski was never in the picture all day. They've already won a title. This is the first one for Martin. So I don't think anybody's feeling very bad today about what happened. So how do they? How do the rest figure out what this one team was doing by itself out there in Denver, Colorado, with basically the yeah. same stuff? How, how long before that cat's out of the bag? Well, yeah, I don't know whether they're doing anything secretive. I mean, they're you know if if. Kyle's car is just about the the uh, the equal of it. 
He's passed Tech. I don't think he's been disqualified. Memory's not that great, but I don't think he failed Tech once this year. The fact of the matter is that they have just a very cohesive unit. This is the same squad to a man that they finished sixth with last year, but they never gave up believing in themselves. The team over the wall is very good. And you know as well as I do, in anything in, in, in sports, if you've got momentum and you've got confidence, yeah. you know, and you're walking cocky, other cars out there could be just as fast as yours and your driver could be just as good. But that team is just so well attuned and they're, they're humming along all on the same page of music. And that sounds like, you know, what, what's that? But that, you know what? That means a lot. And it was just that difference, that little small difference, a few tenths of a second, you know, staying out longer, good strategy that let them win eight races this year and four of them in the playoffs. So a lot of cars are very close. I mean, there's, there's going to be mid-packers and guys at the back, but the guys you expect to be good, they're not that much slower than Marty. They're, they're, that team made the difference this year. And Cole Pern from just down the highway in Strathroy, was uh, was the the guy that held it all together? He quarterbacked that entire endeavor. Yeah, he seems pretty calm, cool, and collected. How I guess yeah. the biggest challenge will be for them now is how do you keep this team together? How do you keep all these guys together? Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't uh, imagine. Well, there there could be a couple of small personnel changes, but I, I'm thinking that you know now that they've won the championship, that they, they won't be looking to replace anybody unless. You know, personal reasons come up sometime, but yeah. But will I, everybody I, be trying to steal coal now, or somebody else? Well, yeah, maybe I suppose. But I, you know, these guys know how difficult it is. We sit here and we just discuss it like stirring a cup of tea. But but everybody knows how darn difficult it is to win these races and how difficult it is to win a championship. Now the challenge for these guys who have gone through hell and back together is to win another one. So I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of guys wanting, you know, saying, well, we're going to raid, we're going to get coal, you know, can we hire Truex away? I think, I think that, that that satellite Joe Gibbs organization is pretty tight, and I think somebody would have to throw a railroad car full of cash at somebody to get them to move out of there. That's a very tightly knit, family-like group they have there, and it'll take a whole lot of doing to get them to go someplace else, I think. Uh, obviously, a lot of high-profile retirements this year. Dale Jr.'s gone. Matt Kenseth yep. doesn't look like he's secure about what his future is going to be. Danica Patrick Danica, is right, gone. Right. What, are your, what are your thoughts on her departing? Well, you know, Danica was good for NASCAR so much as what she won, you know, of the man females. Danica's, Danica's big show had, was a sixth in Atlanta back in 2014, I think it was. Other than that, she was, you know, back in the teens, in the 20s. Where Danica's value for NASCAR really came was the fact that there's a female there, but when she's down on the ground talking to little girls about succeeding in any kind of a sport or anything you want to do, and there really is no gender barrier, that's where Danica was the superstar. I've seen her do it a few times and it's, it's metal whenever he does that. And that's where the big value came in. Now, she's still going to do Daytona next year. Gonna run, who's, the, who's supplying the car for that? Do we don't know about the Daytona 500. My indications are that Chip Ganassi will provide her with the Indy car that she'll use later in May hmm. to do uh, the Indianapolis 500. And remember, you know, when she was driving for Bobby Rahal, that young lady came very close to grabbing the pole for that race. And the only race she actually won was an IndyCar race, and that was in Motegi, Japan, 2008. But, it, you know, there was a little bit of an asterisk there, Scooter, because 
at that time, the IRL was absorbing what was the remnants of Champ Car, mm-hmm. and, and half of the field went to the race in Motegi, and the other field, uh, half of the field went to the IRL race. So was it a weakened field she beat? Yeah, maybe, but she won the race and still is the only female to win an IndyCar race. She's the longest uh, campaigning female in NASCAR Cup and the first full-time female you know, in that series. So, you know, she's had her, her milestones and her marks. And, yeah, NASCAR is going to miss her. But, you know, with, with Kenseth leaving and with Dale Jr. leaving, now who becomes the most popular driver? And if you're an inside wager or er yeah. you may want to you may want to put that on young Chase Elliott yeah. because his old man was, what, a 16-time consecutive NASCAR most popular driver. So, yeah. you know, you got Ryan Blaney coming up. you got Kyle Larson, who looked really fast yesterday at Homestead. Mm. You've got that young crop of guys coming in because the face of the sport really is going to take a drastic change from this year to next year. So what about upcoming females? Uh, like, is there anybody? I don't see anybody in the mm-hmm. truck series or the infinity series that's coming up through there. No. Who's going to fill, no, that, I, who's going yeah. to fill that void? Well, I don't know if it's a void. I, you know, it's like, uh, you know, a couple of extra shrimp in the cocktail, right? You still, she's an, she's an addition. I don't think there's a void when she leaves. I don't think the series is, is going to be poorer because there isn't a female uh, driver, a full-time driver in there. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. There isn't anybody that comes to mind that is in the development now, yeah. either in Xfinity or in trucks. Yeah. Scott, but I mean, maybe, you know, there's a like, Canadian, like maybe a, a Lindsay Rice or somebody who she can get some money, go down there and, and, and try and latch on. But, you know, I, I don't know there's anybody waiting in the wings to take Danica's place. And that's okay. And, and there may be another young lady who comes along in a couple of years and gets that done, and that'll be good, too, and that'll be great when it arrives. Does that mean that there just aren't that many girls out there racing cars? Uh, oh, compared to men, you know what the answer is to that. Yeah. No. There, and there aren't. I mean, you know, I, I, I just mentioned Lindsay. I mean, there's, there's a few around. But they're all very much at the regional kind of and local level with the odd sniff in the NASCAR uh, Canada or Pinty's series. But there isn't anybody, even in Formula One or even in, well, in IndyCar, there was Simona Di Silvestro, and Mm. she's kind of in Formula E now. But in terms of stock car racing, uh, there isn't anybody that's in the, you know, in AAA or AA that's ready to make that jump. They're just, right now, there seems to be a famine in terms of female drivers that you know can that you could maybe look at that's ready to jump up to the big leagues right now they're just in my memory, are you are you surprised at that simply because and there was a lot of stink made when she got into the sport i think richard petty came out one time and I said would, i did the interview with richard when he said that yeah <laughs> well you go ahead yeah. ex- say what he said well he he said uh richard said somebody we were in a scrum he was uh he was a guest at the motorama custom car and motorsports expo couple of winters ago and and i've interviewed richard before and one of the female reporters stephanie walcraft good friend of mine asked richard about danica patrick and I, i'm gonna try and do a bad imitation of richard he said if she won the female if she wasn't a woman nobody care you know she just yeah. because she's a female you, you know we're, we're we're making a big deal out of it in the, you know from that standpoint as you would say <laughs> uh because you know because she's a female but you know what? If, if it was a male driver finishing down in the teens and twenties, yeah. As as they say down in Level Cross, you, you you'd pay no never mind to that. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
The only thing you're missing, man, is a cowboy hat. You'd be there. You'd be yeah, in. Cow- it's a cowboy hat and the sunglasses. Uh, and there's an, yeah, you're, you're right. And, and you know what? And, you know, he's 80. Yeah. He's exactly 80 years old. And there's another story because next year, driving the, the famed, iconic number 43, the most famous stock car in the world, will be uh, NASCAR's first full-time black driver yeah. since Wendell Scott in 1971 yeah. in uh, Daryl Bubba. Wallace yeah. will take over that car, and as Richard said, I, I don't, I don't care, if, I don't care if he's green. All he can do, race the core. If he races the core, he's in, and that's all I care about. So I don't care if a damn about the color of his skin. If he, if he's, if he's got the skill to do it, I don't care where he's from. And, and, and oddly enough, the driver that left the forty-three, Eric Amarillo, is take uh, is taking Danica Patrick's ride over at Stuart isn't Haas. Isn't that funny? Er, yeah, Eric Amarillo is taking uh, uh, the uh, yeah taking Danica's place. So. You know, there's there's a couple of really good storylines coming out of the championship this year, even though, you know, they're still suffering from, you know, low attendance at the racetracks. No matter how you shoot that with cameras, yeah. you're still seeing all, too many empty seats. Their television ratings may be bounced back a little bit this year. But, you know, NASCAR still has a lot of work to do, and some people are, are blaming, you know, the some of the contrivances that I've complained about, about the, you know, the playoff mm-hmm. and the stages and adding laps and giving people their laps back, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's not as popular. It ain't, it ain't boiling the water like it used to. It's still good. Mm-hmm. It still has, you know, it's still, it's still huge, and, it's, and it still has some good racing every once in a while. But, you know, the, uh, it's... It's not at the top of the heap. It still is in terms of ratings overall, but, boy, they're, they're not as popular as they used to be. So NASCAR still has some work to do and try and gain some of that notoriety back. Uh, your thoughts on the stages that they have, which basically ra- breaks the race up into three different stages and you accumulate yeah. points for winning or placing in each stage. Uh, your yeah. thoughts on that? They're certainly, they're certainly lauding that this year as a savior. Well, I don't know if it's a savior or not. It, it's part of, I think you and I have had these discussions. I, I, I kind of long for the day where NASCAR allowed their races to evolve naturally. And, you know, at the, but the biggest problem they have uh, is the fact that nowadays the attention span is a lot shorter. People aren't going to stay in their seats or on television and watch a three- to four-hour race. The races need to be shorter but I don't know if adding points at the end of a certain stage of a race is going to make it better. I don't think it has, to be very honest with you, Scooter. Uh, and I think, you know, if it, if, if they would just, you know, you've got a measured number of laps over a certain number of, a certain amount of distance, and the guy who beats everybody else to the finish line at the end of that is the winner of that. But there's so many deals like we just talked about where you're winning points for, you know, certain sections of the race. And then you're getting laps back when you haven't earned them back. The lucky dog baloney, and, and then adding laps at the end because they think it's cancerous. That's like a soccer game when they add minutes to it. Well, exactly. When <laughs> when you know they they don't want to somehow it's it's poisonous to end a race under yellow. You and I have debated this before. Oh, yeah. I know you don't agree with me yet. The funny thing about it is, if you go back and look at the charts, less than three percent of the races when before all this muck floated in ever finished under yellow Mm. so what is the problem with you know and i i asked old guys like richard and the old garden like bobby allison i said robert bob bobby allison what's the matter with ending a race under yellow he says nothing there's nothing (laughs) nothing there's nothing wrong with it you know 
Yeah, and and I, I tend to agree. If they just let the races evolve naturally, if you go on social media, not everybody agrees with me, and that's fine, but if you go on social media, 90% of the complaints about NASCAR are to do with the rules you're talking about. Mm. The stuff that I think their races and their finishes are over-manipulated, and they're contrived, and, and I don't think they evolve naturally, and I think that's wrong. And I think that has something to do with the fact that the people aren't coming out anymore and the people aren't watching on TV like they used to. That's just my theory, and I tell you this, I'm not the only one who believes that. Let's so, go back to the know, old days when they had to buy the car off the lot first. Well, see, that's another part <laughs> of it. I mean, if you want to get deeper into this discussion, stock cars yeah. used to go to the lot, and if Ford made a Torino that year that was real slippery, you won a lot of races, and if, and, and if Chevy made a dog and a brick, you didn't win anything, and if Plymouth <laughs> made a brick or made a good car, you want a whole heck of a lot. That's what made them stock cars. Now they're all basically the same shape, and, and, and the only difference is is the grill opening and maybe the headlight mm. decals. They're as much stock as the, as the, uh, as the, the space shuttle is. You know, so, I mean, they're, 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 all, they're all hybrid, not hybrid, they're all specially made cars, and they're no more uh, uh, a Ford... Uh, whatever it is, and they're, not, they're a Chevy, there's no difference between them. Do we need to go back to that? That's what makes stock car racing in its purest form. I don't know whether we need to, but there are some who would like to see that happen. All right, only got about a minute left. Uh, Matt Kenseth okay. uh, without, a, without a sponsor, therefore without a ride. Kurt Busch not yeah. signed yet. Two older guys. Uh, does yeah. this, again, just put too much emphasis on the sponsorship? If they don't come with the money, they don't get a ride. Well, yeah, that's that's well. That's been the way yeah. it's been in IndyCar and in Formula One, and it, it's leaking in to NASCAR as well. I mean, it'd be a shame because you know Kenseth is a, a former champ and one of my favorite guys. He's been a guest on our show more than once. Uh, I don't know whether we, as he has said, he has not put himself on the retirement list completely just yet. It wouldn't surprise me if he's on the grid in a one-off for somebody in an add-on for Daytona and maybe at Talladega. Kurt Busch, yeah, you know, there's a, there's another guy, but you know, it it it's getting very tight economically in NASCAR, and you can blame that on the flagging television ratings because the sponsors aren't there to support it with big checks. They're still there with some money, but they're not there like the big checks anymore because the NASCAR races aren't getting the viewers yeah. that you know the, the kind of TV uh, audience they could deliver. That has since shrunk. And that's, you're seeing that on the bottom line with sponsors and their funding. Who's on the show this week? Uh, we're going to talk to Martin Truex Jr. and Cole Pern. We're gonna, we, uh, we, we take the recording from the media center at, at Homestead, Miami, and I, I, I sneak the listeners in on the back row as long as they're, they're quiet and don't let anybody see their <laughs> credential. Sneak them in there, let you hear two segments of what goes on uh, in the media center after races. It's often very humorous. So I just take the raw audio and stick that on the air, and the fans seem to like that. So we'll do that with Martin Truex Jr. and uh, and Cole Pern, and we'll run it in two parts, and that'll be Sunday night, 8 o'clock, uh, right here on the 50,000-watt blowtorch. AM 900, see you at your Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You too, buddy. Appreciate your support, and we'll chat again, I hope, soon. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.